Hey, hello. Welcome back to Jay Hutch Talks Too Much. I'm uh, Jay Hutch, the host of Jay Hutch Talks Too Much. And tonight we are talking about the movie, The Passion of Joan of Arc. This movie has everything that young people today are looking for in a movie. It was made in 1928. It's in black and white. It's uh, silent. There's no dialogue. It's a foreign film. Uh, uh, all of those things, of course, richly add up together to a movie that today's young people are clamoring to see. Well, perhaps that's not the case. But nevertheless, I would say that this is one of the great all-time movies. It is one of my favorite all-time movies. I was just consulting one of my lists um, before today's uh, podcast, and I saw that uh, it was uh, hovering around spot 30. So I would say uh, this is uh, in my top 30, certainly in my top 40 uh, favorite movies. Before I begin, I just want to go through all the usual stuff that I go through. Um, first, if you like the uh, content, please uh, feel free to like the video. If you have not yet subscribed to Jay Hutch Talks Too Much, please subscribe to it. Hit the bell to get the updates to find out when the uh, shows are going to be going on. Unlike today, of course, because I just discovered two day, uh, two two minutes. <laughs> I wish it was two days, but it was in fact two minutes before the podcast started that I found out that I had scheduled this for tomorrow instead of for tonight. So you wouldn't have gotten the right um, information about that. But nevertheless, that bell will give you indications of when my show may or may not be on. So please feel free to hit the bell. Um, if you are listening to this on uh, Apple Podcasts, please feel free to rate and review the podcast. Um, I do also want to say that uh, this is my last episode of the season uh, and what that means. I don't really quite get seasons in terms of this because when I think of seasons, first of all, I don't think I'm doing the seasons correctly the way other people do them, um, which I'm okay with, with that uh, because I think just uh, it would be a bit too much to kind of actually know uh, the ins and outs of real professional podcasting. I don't think I can take that kind of pressure to to understand what the what I should be doing in terms of separating this information into seasons. Uh, back in my day, I tried to find another way of saying that sentence. As it was starting, I was like, don't say back in my day. Um, but I was halfway through and I was like, there's no going back now. So back in my day, a season was like a season of television. It starts in September and it goes until usually May or June. Uh, and then there's the summer and then you start off with the next season in September. Um, but uh, uh, today with these uh, newfangled machines, people have various different conceptions of what a season is. So a show that's been on for a year ha is in its third or fourth season. Um, so, uh, uh, I don't know what it all means. So I've been on for a year, uh, as of next week. Um, so next week I'm going to do a special episode commemorating my first year, uh, doing the Jay Hutch talks too much podcast. I'm not going to say too much about that now, but there is going to be 
a um, uh, kind of a bonus uh, one year anniversary video um, next week uh, on Thursday, uh, because August the 4th, I believe, I believe that is next Wednesday. Um, I'm just trying to check my calendar now. Yeah, August 4th uh, is when uh, uh, was was the day that I uh, first put up the first video. So um, with that in mind, keep that in mind for next week. Please, uh, would love to have you watching that show. Um, but let's begin talking about uh, the passion of Joan of Arc. Normally, when I begin to uh, talk about these movies, I start with a synopsis. Um, and I'm going to give a synopsis of the movie. But I thought maybe because this is a movie that's based on an actual historical event, that I might give just a brief few minutes towards giving some background to the historical event. Because the movie doesn't really give us a background on the history. It sort of, well, I don't know if it presumes knowledge of the historical background, although surely this movie coming out in France uh, in the 1920s, a lot of people would have known the historical background because Joan of Arc, which is information that I'll most likely repeat a couple of times, had been made into a saint at the beginning of the decade, she's made into a saint in 1920. This is two years after the end of World War One. Uh, Joan of Arc is made into a saint in 1920. So there was a lot of, uh, certainly a lot of um, information circulating about Joan of Arc. Again, in France, she was one of the most uh, significant historical figures uh, in the country. So there, obviously, um, they would have presumed when this movie came out that viewers would have had a fairly good uh, understanding of her. And yet at the same time, the movie is made, I think, in a way where you don't necessarily have to have an excellent understanding of the historical background because it's really about exploring this very particular moment in Joan of Arc's life, um, namely the last moments of her life. Um, but nevertheless, I do want to give a, a little bit of historical background just as a way of sort of explaining it. I've written it down just to make sure that it's as correct as it can possibly be, though I'm no historian. But nevertheless, uh, this is the information about who Joan of Arc was. Joan of Arc uh, was a girl who lived in France in the uh, 1400s, the early 1400s. Uh, in uh, 1428, at the age of 16, she requested a meeting with France's King Charles VII. And in that meeting, she claimed to have received messages essentially from God, uh, those through St. Michael and a couple of other saints. Uh, and the messages suggested that she was to help France during the Hundred Years' War, which was a war being fought at the time largely between France and the British, as the British attempted to take over France and were for quite some time successful in doing so. Now, despite these claims, which maybe to our contemporary standards seem very hard to believe, uh, Charles VII nevertheless did believe Joan. He sent her to the siege of Orleans, uh, where the French had a went on to have a significant victory. And from then on, Joan became known as being uh, a crucial element in the war. Uh, her presence was understood as uh, a boost to the morale of soldiers. Um, now, within two years, she's captured 
uh, put on trial in an ecclesiastical court for heresy. Um, why for heresy? Well, for one, Joan claimed to have received messages from God, which would have been contrary to the church's decisive role as a mediator between God and humans. Um, but there was also a political element at work in her being charged for heresy because Joan was essentially claiming that God was on the side of the French, and this contradicted British claims that they had the right to rule over France. Um, now she was found guilty. They executed her, burned her at the stake at the age of 19 uh, or thereabouts. Obviously, the records are not wonderful, but uh, she dies roughly around the age of 19, uh, being executed in 1431. She goes on to, of course, become a very significant symbol uh, of French, uh, uh, French national identity. And as the final card of the film that we're talking about tonight says, Joan's heart has become the heart of France. And as I mentioned before, she receives sainthood in 1920, and this movie is made eight years after that in 1928. So that's a little bit of historical background on who Joan of Arc is, uh, was, uh, and now I'll give the synopsis of the movie. So the movie starts with uh, a hand that is looking through a book which we are meant to believe to be the transcripts of the trial that uh, um, for Joan of Arc. And um, the, a lot of this movie is in fact based on the actual transcripts of the trial. Um, we then have a long tracking shot of the courtroom. Joan is brought in and they immediately try to wrestle a confession out of her to prove that she has made up the claim that she has been sent on a mission by God to rid France of the English. Uh, they begin to interrogate her. Um, they're very condescending. They question her choice to wear men's clothing. One of the judges spits on her. One of the judges, in fact, dissents. He speaks out and he says, in fact, no, Joan is a saint, but this incident and several others demonstrate that dissent amongst the judges will not be tolerated, and the judge that stands up to says that Joan is a saint is taken by the guards out of the courtroom, presumably to be punished. Um, she is then asked by the court if God has made her promises, such as being freed from prison. She answers yes, but she doesn't know when, which doesn't give the judges enough information uh, or doesn't seem to give them the kind of information that they need. This round of interrogation ends. Joan goes to her prison cell where she begins to weave a crown. The judges decide that because they can't get a confession out of her, that they need to deceive her in some way. So they write a letter pretending that it's from King Charles, who says that he's going to war and he has sent along a priest whom she can trust. But of course, it's not actually somebody that she can trust. It's just a, another person who's trying to get Joan's confession. Uh, Joan falls for this ruse and soon the judges enter her cell to ask her questions again. Uh, and she is continuously looking towards this priest that was supposedly sent by King Charles VII for consultation. She's asked if she's in God's grace. Now, this puts her in a double bind. Uh, though it's not explicitly stated in the movie, uh, either answer that she would give 
would condemn her, could condemn her. If she says no, she's not in God's grace, then she would have to be admitting that she's been lying this whole time about being God's messenger. But if she says yes, then she could be condemned for challenging the authority of the church. Um, so her answer uh, that she gives is a, certainly a very uh, potentially troublesome one, but she ends up defying this double bind when she says, uh, if I am not in God's grace, may God put me there. And if I am, may God so keep me. Okay. Uh, so then uh, after this, and after refusing once again to stop wearing men's clothing, she's told that she's going to be tortured. She's taken to a torture chamber uh, where she is told by the judges that she was not sent by God, but that she was sent by Satan who has tricked and betrayed her. Uh, they then try to get her to sign the confession, but she refuses. They start the torture devices uh, to try to intimidate her, which it does because she faints. She's then taken to an infirmary where a significant amount of blood is taken from her. Um, and uh, knowing that she's fearing at this point imminent death, the main judge calls for the holy sacrament, which is the... Um, cracker uh, that they uh, hand out in Catholic churches. Forgive me for probably not using the right terminology, um, but they bring it in. Um, but they then, so she's very happy that they brought this in, um, but they say you'll only get the sacrament if you sign the confession and she doesn't, uh, and they take the sacrament away and they summon the executioner. Um, um, now, uh, once out to be executed, um, she's very frightened by the threat of death, and she is essentially at that point guided into signing the confession. Somebody takes her hand and helps her sign the confession. Um, uh, consequently, it's announced that she's not going to be executed, but she will be condemned to uh, perpetual imprisonment, and they take her away, and they cut off all of her hair. Now, at that point, Joan announces that she repents that she lied in her confession. Um, and she has this exchange with uh, a, a, a figure, one of the judges who is sympathetic towards her, uh, actually played by um, a famous uh, poet and uh, um, the uh, creator of the theater of cruelty, uh, Antonin Artaud. Um, she, he asks her, um, when will you, uh, what was the message from God that said that you would be free? Uh, as she's asked at the beginning, and she says, I am, I was told I'd be free um, in my death. So uh, this is her actual freedom, because she is uh, refusing to um, confess uh, and knows that she's going to be executed as a result. Um, and so her death sentence is back on, uh, and Joan is told that she is to die at the stake, uh, she is then burned at the stake while a crowd of mourners watch. Um, and as soon as she dies, a riot breaks out after one of the villagers yells out in anger that they've burned a saint. And that is essentially the movie. Um, so I'm just going to take uh, some large sips here of my delicious beverage. One more sip here of my delicious beverage. Okay, so that's that's the movie. As I say, it's uh, it's a silent film. This is the first silent movie that we are doing on Jay Hutch Talks Too Much. Uh, I'm also, uh, I, 
I counted this up or I, I looked through some of the past episodes and uh, I noticed something that I'm, I'm kind of happy with, actually, that uh, I have a movie, at least one movie per decade um, represented from each decade from the 1920s up until the 1990s. So I have a movie from the 1920s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, 70s, 80s, and the 90s. And I talked about the Get Back documentary done in 2021. Uh, th that space between 2000 and 2021 is a admittedly a fairly blank space at this point. Um, but we will cover that up uh, at one point. We will fill that void. Um, so, yeah, it's an old movie made in 1928. It's a silent film. Um, and as I say, I think that this is a, a phenomenal movie. So why is this movie, why do I think that this movie is so good? Well, there's many reasons. The first one, I just want to talk about the, the film from the, the, the content uh, point of view. Um, it does, in many ways, uh, reinforce a lot of the things that we've talked about on the podcast. Um it calls to mind some of the conversations that we had about uh, Kafka. One of the central things I think that's going on with this movie is that it is suggesting that the powerful minority who are represented in this movie by the clerical judges um, do not get to define what counts as the truth. Uh, ultimately, uh, Joan's constant refusal to sign the confession is a defiant act standing up against a small body of powerful people who believe that they are the ultimate arbiters of what constitutes the truth. And um, she is challenging that. Now, I think that there's a, a, many questions that can be asked about this, right? Because I think one could reasonably say, well, do you think that Joan is telling the truth. Now, for me to believe that Joan was telling the truth would mean to say that I would believe that she was a messenger of God, that she was spoken to by St. Michael, uh, given these messages, and so on and so forth. Now, do I believe that that's true? No, I don't believe that that's true. Um, I also, likewise, should say that I don't believe that the counter-argument that it was not St. Michael, but it was Satan, the argument that the judges appear to believe in, uh, although I'm, you know, I'm skeptical that they believe that either. Um, but um, do I believe that? No, I don't believe uh, either side in that debate. Um, but it's clearly not about that. Um, we have seen in this movie that it's not just Joan that is getting punished. Um, it's uh, other figures as well that we see. Um, remember uh, that you have that one uh, judge who speaks out against what's happening in this courtroom, saying, no, Joan is a saint, and he's immediately thrown out. At one point, they ask Joan a question, and she says that it's not relevant to the court proceedings, and the um, head judge says, well, why don't we put it to a vote and have everybody put up their hands? And you see this shot of everybody's hand up except for one. And then the head judge gives him a pretty stern look and the guy raises his hand. 
because the point is, is that there just simply cannot be any dissent. There cannot be multiple points of view. So it has really nothing to do with the fact that Joan is arguing that she is a messenger of God, that she has been sent in order to help France rid the land of the British. It has to do with the fact that this one group of people have deemed themselves the arbiters of the truth, that they have the sole monopoly over the truth, and anybody who dares to suggest otherwise will get punished in some ways. And Joan is resisting that. Um, and so that is, again, uh, I think, the crux of this film. Um, one, of course, can do a sort of religious um, interpretation of the movie. Um, I'm not a religious person, so I'm not, that's not the major interest in terms of my, my focus. Um, again, to me, it's more about the fact that you have somebody resisting uh, a powerful group of people deciding over what gets to be constituted as the truth and what gets to be categorized as false. And it's, again, also not simply that Joan herself is resisting this. It's that she has become quite powerful in resisting it or that she has become almost symbolic in resisting it. Uh, here is where a bit of knowledge of history becomes significant. Um, again, Joan was becoming popular throughout France as being a sort of symbol of French resistance to British power. When she was around, the French seemed to do well. And so it's one thing for somebody to utter a truth that is not acceptable by the powerful. It's another thing to utter a truth that's not accepted by the powerful in a way that is so prominent and public, right? And this is what Joan has done. And not only has she done that, but she's done it in a way that has led to some success. Um, and so that, again, is quite a crucial component to why the, uh, the judges are coming down so harshly uh, against her. Um, and again, uh, I think that all of this is significant. We've talked a little bit uh, before in past previous episodes uh, about the significance of sort of a, uh, I don't want to say a national literature, because sometimes uh, we're talking about texts that come out before even the creation of the nation state. But let's say a kind of cultural literature. We talked a bit about the Iliad, Homer's Iliad, about how that was a book that was portraying events that, you know, obviously, once again, heavily fictionalized events um, that were meant to take place hundreds of years before in order to sort of demonstrate to an audience who were at a fairly weak point in their history, remember a time when we were great, remember this period uh, where we did these grand heroic acts. Remember when we were warriors? Here I'm talking specifically about the Iliad. Well, in some respects, there's a significance to the Joan of Arc story at the time that this movie is being made. As I say, um, Joan of Arc becomes a saint uh, in 1920. Uh, this is two years after World War I. 
um, which is a war in which uh, which would have demoralized the French. Um, and so the fact that you have two years after this is probably not coincidental that two years after this very demoralizing war, you give sainthood to this figure who historically was, um, you know, uh, uh, again, brought good luck to the uh, French military uh, and uh, resisted um, uh, the, the powerful at the time. So there's a significance to that. So you can kind of imagine that uh, while she would have been widely considered to be an important historical figure before 1920, that you might have a, a very renewed interest in Joan of Arc from in, in the period that follows World War One, and then you get a movie like the The Passion of Joan of Arc, which is interestingly enough a movie that's not made by a French filmmaker. Uh, the man who makes The Passion of Joan of Arc is. Uh, um, uh, Sorry, Carl Theodore Dreyer. In my head, I was like, Theodore, Carl, Carl Theodore Dreyer. Um, I do confess, um, Dreyer is one of, uh, known as being one of the great filmmakers. I, I have not seen many of Dreyer's films. I have seen two of his movies. Um, he's uh, most well known for this movie and another movie he makes in the 1950s called Ordet. Uh, he also made a movie called Day of Wrath, which is quite well known. Uh, I haven't seen those other two well-known movies. I saw a movie that he made, in fact, before The Passion of Joan of Arc, I think in 1925, called Master of the House. And I will say, to be perfectly honest, it is good. I don't know if I can go beyond good, um, but it is a fair movie. But it is in some ways kind of Shocking that it is simply good because The Passion of Joan of Arc is really a kind of masterwork. It's a work of really masterful filmmaking. Uh, and in comparison, and maybe it was unfair that I was putting this onto Master of the House, um, but Master of the House seems, um, you know, much less sort of elegant um, than a movie like The uh, Passion of Joan of Arc. So those are the only two I've seen. Uh, he goes on to make <clears throat> great movies in the 1940s and the 1950s, uh, and he still makes films in the 1960s as well. Um, also acclaimed films then too. Sorry, I'm just going to take a drink of water. But he's <clears throat> not French. He is Danish, um, which is something that uh, people were critical of at the time because uh, a lot of French critics believe that a movie about Joan of Arc should have been made by a French filmmaker, which does suggest that uh, in many ways some things haven't changed in that regard. Um, but clearly he was the right person, I believe, to make a uh, film like this. And I'll talk a little bit more about his um, gr uh, great um, direction work uh, in just a little bit. Um, but I will also say that uh, more than simply just showing a woman who resists uh, power, um, but it's also showing us the difficulty of sticking to your principles or sticking to what you believe in when you have a powerful organization that is challenging you for your beliefs. Um, 
if you look at the synopsis that I gave, I can imagine somebody hearing that synopsis and think, boy, this just sounds like a movie where the same thing is happening over and over and over again. They ask her to confess. She says no. They go away. They come back. They ask her to confess. She says no. They try something else. They ask her to confess. She says no. But again, when I'm just saying it, and I do think, obviously, that the synopses are important for people who haven't seen the movie or for people who haven't seen it in a long time. But the synopsis really doesn't really give credit to what is happening in this movie. Because, yes, if you look at it from the surface level, if you just look at the bare bones of the plot, that is essentially exactly what is happening. Um, and, you know, it's a short film. It's about 81 minutes long. It's not, you know, belaboring the point too much. But nevertheless, it is true that, um, you know, you do see this sort of constant, will you confess, will you confess? Um, that, though, does not get boring to me, and it does not seem uh, aggressive in terms of the story. Uh, it demonstrates to me uh, just how, you know, you think of yourself in a situation like this, and you just think of how much you are being worn down in this scenario, right? Uh, will you confess? Will you confess? And you ultimately do kind of feel quite a bit uh, like her. Um, one of the things, according to a scholar named Casper um, Tyberg, uh, he did the commentary on the movie. Uh, I, I watched that um, this morning. Uh, and he said that, um, that Dreyer said that he wanted the audience to feel the sufferings that Joan endured uh, on their own skin. Now, this comment is interesting because I read uh, an essay uh, recently in preparation for this video, which was um, comparing the movie to uh, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, which uh, I, I did see when that movie came out. And um, the, the essay was, was making an argument that suggested that uh, what... Um, what is happening in uh, the Passion of Joan of Arc is very different from what's happening in the uh, Passion of the Christ. But I have to say, um, I'm not entirely convinced that that's true. There's a lot of differences, certainly. Uh, and stylistically, the two movies are incredibly different. But it is trying to say like that it's, you know, because in the Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson really wanted us to... to to see the violence that was perpetrated against Christ uh, and was really emphasizing that where uh, some critics would have called it like a kind of a torture porn kind of movie. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I can kind of see a little bit of that at work. We do, after all, we see her being burned at the stake in this movie uh we 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 see that happening um so you know maybe it's not as lengthy um but i think and but the fact is we do see her suffering it's a violent suffering and dreyer said that he wanted the audience to feel the sufferings that joan endured on her own skin so I don't know. I think probably that this person wanted to draw a distinction between the two movies because one is revered and one in some circles is reviled. So it was necessary to draw those distinctions. But I haven't seen The Passion of the Christ since it came out. Uh, 
I, I, I can't personally say that I thought the movie was great, but uh, I don't know if I would necessarily um, draw such a fine distinction between them uh, on this particular issue, but maybe somebody who has seen the movie can comment uh, more on that. Um, we have a, a comment here from Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. I'm glad that you're here. Ryan says that I like the observation about the element of time uh, and feeling like Joan. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think that in many ways that is what happens in this movie, that we're kind of put in her shoes. Um, and um, again, not just because we're sort of told time and time again um, that um, that uh, or, or shown time and time again, her refusing to. Uh, sign this confession, but we also see her finally accepting uh, or giving in. Uh, she does sign the petition, um, sort of. I mean, yes, her hand is being forced into doing it, but only be for you know, only either because not because uh, she won't do it or because she's resisting, but because she's very weak at the time and because. Um, quite possibly she doesn't know how to spell her own name. So uh, that's why she's uh, being led into signing this petition, which is, of course, you know, uh, troublesome, I think, from a legal uh, point of view. But uh, but beyond that, uh, she does give in. Um, and eventually, after they cut off her hair and they she sees them sweeping up the crown that she made and the crown is a very important symbol in this movie um the crown that she wears is obviously a uh, symbol of christ and it's put on her it's forced onto her head at one point which does in some ways demonstrate her divine stature and um when she sees it being swept up with her hair close to the end of the movie, it's obviously a reminder to her of her faith and her beliefs. And so this is when she says, oh, no, I lied about that confession. I didn't mean it. But I think it is crucial that we see that moment. And I don't even know if I'd call it a, a moment of weakness, because I don't know if it's weak to after being browbeaten for, you know, all of this time. And to be perfectly honest, while this movie strives for a great deal of accuracy, it's using the court transcripts and things like that, um, that, uh, that um, it is also on Dreyer's own acknowledgement compressing a lot of the time. So a lot of this was going on for days and days and days and days. Um, and she finally acknowledges it, or she finally does confess against her own nature um and at that point she's also already seen the torture room she's fainted they've taken blood from her and now she is being brought out into the open in order to be publicly executed she's being confronted with mortality and this is something that dryer is uh, representing to us because she sees a skull with with uh, maggots crawling through it and um she sees these things and and i don't think it's weak <laughs> at that point to go against your beliefs now certainly one would hope one wouldn't in that moment uh one would really hope that they wouldn't but you know um i can't blame people who do uh and i and i don't know if i would be quite so uh uh quick to call it uh, a weakness um, I like Ryan's point here that this treatment of time 
seems to be a feature of a few religious filmmakers, Bresson, Tarkovsky, and Dreyer. Yeah, absolutely. I think we can see a lot of um, similarities in those in those filmmakers. Definitely. Um, I think I do think that. Um, I mean, one of the things that I'll probably talk about in, in a few moments is that I also see a lot of Bergman um, in Dreyer, uh, and Bergman is not. A, well, he's a filmmaker who's constantly wrestling with his religious upbringing and can't, I don't, and I think gets to a point at least in his filmmaking, maybe Ryan and I will talk about this someday, uh, but gets to a point in his filmography where he can no longer justify um, his beliefs. Um, so you can't call him necessarily a religious filmmaker in the same way that we see with Bresson and Tarkovsky. Uh, but certainly I can see him being inspired by this film. And that's not just uh, um, that's not just um, guessing either, because I did look today again at a list of Ingmar Bergman's favorite movies because I had a hunch The Passion of Joan of Arc would be on it, and it was on it. So I, I do think that in some ways, you know, and, and, and um, you know, Tarkovsky is indebted to uh, as a filmmaker Tarkovsky for those of you who don't know is a, a Russian filmmaker um, starts to make sort of uh, again uh, most of his movies are in um, early 19 uh, begins making his feature length movies in the 1960s uh, makes films throughout the 60s and 70s and the 80s Tarkovsky is heavily influenced by French filmmaker Robert Bresson and uh, and Ingmar Bergman I'd say are his sort of two um, biggest uh, influences um, so uh, Ryan says, I think that you're right about Gibson too. Uh, maybe in both passion films, the slow pace comes from the idea that these events are sacred. It's like documentation. I, I think that's a great point. And I think to that point, um, you know, documentation is a, a, a vital uh, part of this movie. Uh, it begins with the book from which the transcript uh, was written. Uh, it's not the actual book, I should say, but um, there is uh, uh, the book in which the notes were taken from the uh, actual trial uh, from which um, uh, Dreyer bases a lot of the screenplay. Uh, part of the screenplay, incidentally, is uh, the screenplay is co-written. Uh, uh, the other writer wrote a, a novel uh, of Joan of Arc upon which some of this was was based. Um, and wrote a draft of the script, but I think Dreyer made some significant changes to it. Um, but you also see in the opening shot, well, after that shot of the book, you then see the tracking shot of the courtroom. And in the background, you can see the, uh, the transcriber uh, walking with that same, with supposedly that same book, which has not been written in yet at that point. Um, and then you see him in various other points points too. So uh, certainly the kind of documentation component is at work. So not only do we see is Dreyer documenting these events as sort of realistically as possible, although as I'll mention in just a few moments as well, also as stylistically as possible. And that seems to almost be a, a contradiction, but I don't think it is uh, in, in this particular case, or if it is, it's a contradiction that works for the movie. Let's put it that way. And um, and so not only is he um, documenting this film as realistically as possible, 
but he's also calling attention to the documentation that was going on at the time that this was actually happening in the uh, 1400s. Um, so yeah, I think that's those are those are some great points to bring up. So uh, yeah, again, uh, I think that this movie is doing a lot of important things in that it is um, showing us somebody's um, resistance of uh, a powerful organization to to control what counts as true and what doesn't. Um, and uh, but I also think that it sh it it's very powerful in demonstrating to us how difficult uh, it is to do that. Um, and it does that by, in some ways, making us feel the way that Joan would have felt in that moment. Because I think when she has the, that break where she finally does sign the confession or even before that, when she faints in the torture room, um, you know, we can we can understand it uh, because Dreyer has done such a good job at conveying uh, her situation to us. But I would be remiss if I didn't point out who does another fantastic job of conveying that to us, which is the actress who plays um, uh, Joan of Arc, which is Renee Jean Falconetti. Um, Falconetti's performance is one of the greatest performances I've ever seen on, on film. Um, and, you know, I would put it up there um, with, um, who else would I, uh, I would put it up there with uh, Gina Rollins in um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. No, she's not in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I, I anticipated what my next <laughs> performance was going to be. Uh, they are all people who are suffering from mental illnesses. I can see right from the get go. It's, it's, it strikes me, but, um, but, uh, Gina Rollins in a woman under the influence, Jack Nicholson in one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Um, but all, uh, also, um, you know, uh, Monica Vitti in, uh, La Ventura, um, or, uh, um, actually, uh, and I, her name escapes me at the moment. Maybe Ryan can remind me. Uh, Federico Fellini's wife in um, um, La Strada is one of the great performances. Um, so uh, uh, I can't remember. The, her initials are GM. I can tell you that right now. But um, yeah, this is one of the great all-time uh, performances. Um, and uh, I don't know, again, if... I would say, so Dreyer says he wants the audience to feel the sufferings that Joan endured uh, on their own skin. Now, I don't know if I feel like I'm suffering when I'm watching this movie. And I think that, first of all, it's an important thing to say for those of you who haven't seen this movie, and especially if I'm trying to encourage you to watch the movie, because I really do think that you should. And so I do want to stress that at the very least, I don't feel like I'm suffering when I'm watching this movie. Um, but, uh, and I'm not just saying that because I want you to watch it, but I do think that Falconetti um, does move us profoundly. Uh, I feel, uh, I feel a lot when I'm watching this movie, um, but I feel moved. I can feel sad. Um, and again, the significant thing is that she does this all without the advantage of sound, right? Without the advantage of dialogue. Um, 
And I think that that's, in many ways, it's it's the advantage of sound, but sound would be a disadvantage to this movie because it is such a spectacular visual performance. Um, and uh, again, just what Falconetti does with uh, her facial expressions, what she does with her eyes, it's a spectacular visual performance. Her expressiveness is disarming and it's completely moving. And if you watch the movie, uh, I think uh, for Falconetti alone is enough of a reason to watch this movie. It's such a um, significant performance. Um, but her performance, again, is tied in with the movie's style. Uh, so I, I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about the style of the movie. So as I said before, there could be this strange contradiction where the movie is both extremely sort of sparse and spartan but is also uh at the same time ex expressionist right very similar to sort of german expressionism which i'll spend a little bit of time talking about in a second but it's not a german expressionist film so i'm not going to get into that too much but um but i will say that the uh, production. One of the production designers on the movie was um, a guy by the name of Herman Varm, and Herman Varm uh, was also the, I think, the set designer on the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is another one of my favorite movies. Don't like it quite as much as The Passion of Joan of Arc. Both of the movies would be in my sort of favorite list. If you go and see my list on Letterboxd, you'll see that they're both there. Um, but uh, also, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is, um, is an older film. It's from, I think, 1920. So it's a very early um, movie. Um, but if you've seen that movie, um, and and maybe I would just sort of, I'll see if I can find one of the uh, sets of it uh, here to, to show you. Um, let me see. Um, they're kind of, in a way, quite cartoonish. Um, so let me see, actually, if I can get a good. OK, so this just came up here. Uh, and I will see if I can um, share my screen. So just give me one second while I do that. Um, and let's see. OK, so this is. We're getting about five different advertisements here that we could see. And now it's cutting away. Is it still up here? Let me see. Yeah. So I don't know if you can see that, but it looks very kind of almost kind of cartoonish. I would say that, um, you know, Tim Burton um, is a uh, sort of student of that style. And um, yeah, kind of cartoonish, a lot of sort of jagged edges and things like that. Um, so he's the production designer on this movie as well. So you do see these kind of highly stylistic ex expressionist kind of sets. Um, uh, and, uh, but at the same time, you don't see a lot of the sets. And that's, again, significant because this movie ended up being quite costly. And a lot of those costs went into the set building. Uh, but you, a lot of the movie, you barely see any of the sets. It's not as if you see none of the set at all, but so much of the movie 
uh, has uh, is is devoted to sort of close-ups, and the close-ups of this movie are the thing that's one of the most talked about components of this movie. I'll see if I can actually. I know some of you are listening to this, so you can't see, but I'm going to try and give you a good sense of um, sort of how how this movie looks. A lot of it is like this, uh, and if you're just listening, you can. You can, uh, I'll tell you right now that I put my face very close up to the screen, which is, I'm sure, a nightmare scenario for most people. Um, a lot of it is just like that, very sort of tight close-ups. And the background is usually a kind of white uh, in, in those, in those close-ups. Um, so it's a series of so many close-ups. Now, some might watch this movie and say, uh, this looks really weird. Uh, this doesn't even look like a movie. And they might put it down to the fact that it's so old, right? Oh, no wonder it looks so weird and unusual. It's a movie that was made in 1928. Well, in fact, the movie was considered very odd looking when it came out. And Dreyer was critiqued quite heavily for it by some critics. And eventually he had to speak out about it. And he said that, um, this is a direct quote. He said, I admit that this use of close-ups was in open conflict with the theoretical principles that were then taken as the basis of all filmmaking, which does suggest in some ways that age does play a, a, a fact, is a factor in this because, you know, it would have been very unusual but as he points out, you know, I was, he's, as I think he's suggesting with that quote, he's sort of suggesting I was making movies in, at a time when some of these rules were, were still being made. And some of the ways people would make films sort of caught on and ended up being, this is the way we make films from that point on. And some of them didn't. It's kind of like a natural selection sort of a process. Uh, and I think he would say, and the way that I was making a movie like The Passion of Joan of Arc that was a way that didn't catch on. Like it didn't stick with uh, future movies. So while it is kind of true that in some ways the time plays a factor in this, the fact of the matter is, is The Passion of Joan of Arc would have looked very unusual to an audience in 1928 as well. And also quite often the shots don't connect with one another in a traditional way. So a character, for example, a character might look right Right. And when I look right, like like the way I just did, it might cut to something. And the thing that it cuts to would be the thing you would assume the thing that I was looking at when I turned to my right. Well, quite often that doesn't happen in this movie. People will kind of look off to the right and the next shot will not be connected to whatever it was that they were just looking at. Um, there will be things where characters will often. Um, you know, uh, will be speaking sort of directly to one of the characters. There'll be two characters who are having a conversation and one of the characters will be looking right sort of at the camera, the, again, the way that I'm doing now. And then it'll cut to the person that they're talking to and they'll be like looking up like this. And it creates this confusion in the audience because now you don't know. And also it has to do with the fact that the shots are so tight you don't see any kind of um, shot that shows where everybody is in the room. So you have a person looking like this, and then the person they're talking to in the next shot is looking like that. You don't know where anybody's standing. You can't really get a good sense of where people are looking. Um, 
and it, and it ultimately is this kind of disorienting um, feeling. Um, but and, and then on top of that, you have this kind of notion of um, this other filmmaker, great filmmaker, Sergei Eisen, Sergei Eisenstein, made uh, Battleship Potemkin in I think 1925, 1926 in that era. Uh, when he was asked what he thought of the movie, he said that um, that he thought the movie was very interesting and beautiful, but not a film. He says it was rather a series of wonderful photographs. Now, again, all of this adds up to, uh, I think, a movie that you need to spend a little bit of time um, rewiring your brain a little bit in terms of how to approach this movie, or at the very least, just know that you can't come to approach this movie with the same sort of expectations that you come to most movies. Um, the, the quote from Eisenstein about how it's not a film, but a rather a series of wonderful photographs, I think, at least to me, demonstrates what makes this movie so special. Because all of the things that I just talked about, the close-ups, the uh, unusual way in which characters are you know, looking at each other, the way he violates sort of basic sight lines, the fact that it could be interpreted more as a series of wonderful photographs than a film, um, does demonstrate to me why this movie is so unique and so special. Because all of these things to me, are working to create an impression or a mood. And I don't think there's any other movie that can make you feel the way that the passion of Joan of Arc can make you feel because no other movie does the things that it does and no other movie looks the way that it does. Uh, it, it might, you would probably find many movies that look like the passion of Joan of Arc for some of it, for like a section of the movie, but not for the whole movie. Um, and again, the movie is not entirely close-ups, <clears throat> but it has a unique look all the way through it. It has a coherent and consistent mood that runs all the way through it. And that mood is established, I think, by the way that the film is shot. Um, and also through its uh, performances. Um, you get some good uh, tracking shots, as I say, that kind of opening shot that runs through. There are plenty of moments where um, where a dryer is showing off the set that was built for the movie. Um, but so you get some good uh, tracking shots. You get some interesting, as I said before, some interesting Ingmar Bergman-like shots. Um, when uh, Joan of Arc is being brought out, I think, to be executed. There's a cut to sort of uh, blackbirds flying uh, away. And uh, there's another kind of moment when her hair is being cut. Uh, the film sort of cuts in these sort of um, medieval circus performers um, who are waiting outside. Uh, again, I'm not entirely sure why, but potentially to illustrate the the um you know the sideshow nature of what is going on um that reminds me very much of the seventh seal obviously well i say obviously some of you haven't seen that movie but there's uh, you know circus performances play a um 
medieval circus performances or, or medieval theatrical performances, I should say, play a, a significant role in that in that movie. Um, so I, I see a, a lot of um, anticipation of Bergman there. Um, just one second, take, take another drink here. I also see anticipation of people like Orson Welles. There's a lot of shots, you know, Welles to me um, is famous, well, he's famous for a lot of things, but one of the things that I think makes him stand out as a filmmaker, and I stress just one of the things, because there's many things that make him stand out, but are those shots that uh, appear from below and look up. Um, and there's um, plenty of shots like that in, uh, or at least there are a few shots like that, I should say, in the Passion of Joan of Arc as well. So I think that uh, there's a lot of anticipation for sort of the style of film that comes uh, in the 1940s and the 1950s, uh, which brings me to sort of to my next point, which is that, um, again, this movie's made in 1928, and it's made just as the silent movie era is coming to an end. A year before this movie came out, uh, a movie came out called The Jazz Singer, comes out in 1927. It's the first movie that has sound in it and uh, essentially shakes up the movie industry. And from that point on, there's this move towards sound. And by the time you get to essentially the end of the 1920s or the very beginning of the 1930s, there's virtually no sound films that are being made uh, anymore. Um, and there was, uh, I was recently listening to a podcast called uh, The Important Cinema Club, which I think is a tongue-in-cheek title. Um, the guys who do it are, I, I think, quite amusing. Um, they're uh, local Toronto guys. And um, and they. I was listening to a podcast that they were just, do, just did on Charlie Chaplin. Uh, and I heard one exchange in it that I wanted to sort of write down and say for tonight, because they said, one of them said, um, they said this, they said, I think in 1927, 1928, the last gasp of silent film, I would have liked that period to have lasted just a little bit longer because I really do think they nailed it in those last couple of years with movies like Wings and Sunrise. And then the other host of the show said, uh, a lot of people say that they were just getting to that point of visual mastery of the form in finding ways to communicate things silently. And with the advent of sound, uh, keep in mind, this was just a random conversation. So, it was, you know, I'm transcribing some, some just an actual off the cuff improv conversation. But with the advent of sound, it not only brought a whole bunch of other complicated things to making movies, it also locked cameras down because you have these big blimps and you had to completely cover the camera. You couldn't really move it. And you had to force people to restart from the beginning saying, all right, how do you tell these stories? And it kind of stalled out when sound really started. So uh, I, I wanted to talk about that just for a second because, well, first, let me just Again, let me stress that that was just a conversation, so I don't want to hold them to like, you were wrong about this, you were wrong about this. But I do want to maybe um, massage the quotes just a little bit, because 
I think that there were a, a lot of artistic, great artistic triumphs before 1927, 1928. Uh, there is the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, for example, that I mentioned, uh, Sherlock Jr., the Buster Keaton movie, Charlie Chaplin's The Gold Rush, um, Battleship Potemkin, which I mentioned. All of those are from before 1927, 1928. But I do think that there is something to their point that as far as elegantly made movies, like really well done movies, uh, that the silent era probably did reach its height in that late era. And even after it ended, when Charlie Chaplin was essentially the one holdout stick in the mud who refused to capitulate to the sound era. This is why I love Charlie Chaplin. This is why I think he is the director of the silent film. Uh, for me, uh, or he's the director of the silent era for me, because here's a guy who doesn't change the way he makes movies because it's the new, trendy, fashionable way to make movies. He'll make those kinds of movies when he feels that he can tell a good story that way or when he can make a good movie that way. But if he has a good movie to make that's silent, even in the sound era, He's going to make the silent movie, which is what he does. And he makes ends up making his best movie um, several years into um, sound filmmaking, um, a movie like City Lights, and even which comes out in 1931, and even um, Modern Times, which comes out in 1936, which does include, you know, Charlie uh, is experimenting with sound a little bit more in that movie, uh, but it is almost overwhelmingly a silent film as well. Um, but again, I do think that there is something to that, right? That the great, the really great silent era comes at its end. Movies like Wings and Sunrise, which were, were mentioned in the podcast, but also City Lights and uh, Metropolis. And um, and also uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc as a, as a great example of that. Uh, you also, I would say, I wouldn't be so quick to um, be critical uh, of the movies that can't come out in the very early sound era um, when they say that uh, it kind of stalled out when sound really started. Um, I do think you get some excellent movies that are made in that era. Uh, movies like Fritz Lang's M, um, the early Marx Brothers movies. Um, but one of the things I do want to add on is that... Uh, I, I do wonder if because now they had sound as this new thing to help tell your story, that we end up for a while with filmmakers who neglect the visual component. And at the very least for me, and I assume that this has to be the case with a lot of people out there, that the visual component is such a crucial component to movies. Uh, I do think that to some degree that is lost on some contemporary audiences. I remember a few years ago, I was actually quite a few years ago now, come to think of it, because I was in the theater watching the movie There Will Be Blood, the Paul Thomas Anderson movie. And I remember being with somebody who turned to somebody else that we were with. We were about an hour into the movie. And they said, does this movie even have a plot? Uh, which was obviously a critical remark about the movie. And I just remember thinking, I, I don't know how one could be watching this movie and be critical of it right now, because it's just at the very least 
doing so many significant things visually and i think the movie does tell a good story but uh but beyond that it's it was such a magnificent visual film and uh and so i do think yeah for for an audience it's not uh, the visual component is not as significant, but it is for me uh, a very significant component because there are plenty of movies that I love that don't have that much of a plot, but are visually um, very compelling. Um, but nevertheless, uh, I, I do think perhaps that that was something that may have been lost briefly uh, in the 1930s, that because sound is such a novelty that there's much more of a focus on sound as a way to tell a story. We can tell a story now through sound. We don't have to tell a story through images. We can tell a story through sound. Um, that that visual component perhaps gets temporarily uh, lost right up until a movie like, say, Citizen Kane, which is such an extraordinary visual film that comes out in the early 1940s. Um, uh, where you start to get perhaps a turn towards that visual component again. Now there were again there's some great visual moments in movies in the 1930s, and I'm thinking in particular here movies like um, like like Busby Berkeley's segments in musicals in the 1930s, for example. If you've ever seen the movie. Gold Diggers of 1933, for example, or Footlight Parade. There's some phenomenal uh, sort of dance aquatic sequences in those movies that are some of the most spectacular visual moments in film. But I will say even with those, those are kind of like brief moments in a movie that are separate from the narrative. I mean, yes, they're part of the story because it's like we're putting on this production and now here's the production. And now we're going to stop this kind of romance story for a while and now focus on these kind of dance numbers or musical numbers or things like that. Um, so even that kind of perhaps demonstrates that they weren't really sure on how to combine both the sound element and the visual element as one to tell a kind of coherent narrative. Um, but um, anyway, those are still great movies. But uh, I do think that perhaps there is there is something to this. And it is worth kind of thinking about what silent films might have looked like had they continued to go on until the 1930s, the mid-1930s. What would the silent era have looked like in 1935 or 36 or 37 if they were building up into this kind of era of metropolis, um, um, uh, uh, sunrise, uh, Passion of Joan of Arc era? What would it have looked like if it had been allowed to uh, go further. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting, certainly, to, to think about. Uh, it also, I would say, doesn't fully make sense why silent films should die out because of sound. I can understand that uh, why they do. And I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that they're both considered to be, you know, they're both called movies or film. There's silent film. And now this other thing that's called sound gets integrated into that film. But again, they're really two entirely different modes of communication. And it seems to me that, you know, it, it, it makes sense. It's reasonable. It, it's understandable to us that paintings should not have died out and didn't die out when the camera was invented, right? It was understood 
these are two different modes of communication and that pictures shouldn't have died out or, or didn't die out when moving pictures became a thing. Um, and it, again, uh, along those same lines, it doesn't make sense that sound pictures should simply replace silent pictures. Uh, the fact is, is that you could have had both of them going at the same time. Uh, but nevertheless, we do have, I think, a fairly substantial treasure trove of silent movies that are well worth um, paying attention to and reviewing. The important thing, though, I think, is to remember that it is almost a different medium, right? Just as you bring different expectations to a photograph that you bring to a painting, and you bring different expectations to a moving picture than you do to a static picture, I think you bring different expectations to a sound picture than you do to a silent film. Uh, but there, if you do bring sort of different critical faculties to bear, I think that you would be able to appreciate a silent film just as much as you appreciate a sound film. And there's so many great ones. And I do hopefully... I will hopefully talk about more on this channel. But the first one uh, we are talking about is this one, The Passion of Joan of Arc. And if you haven't seen it and you haven't watched too many silent films, this might be a good one to start with. Again, it's unusual. It was for a period of time deemed to be a kind of a experimental uh, film or avant-garde kind of a film, which Carl Dreyer objected to. He didn't see it as an experimental film. Uh, yes, I'm sure he would have acknowledged that it was stylistic, um, but he didn't see it as experimental. Uh, and I will say the movie is very easy to understand. It's not like you sit there going, what the heck is going on now? I don't think, at least I don't do that. Uh, so it's, it's quite easy to understand, but it is doing a lot of interesting things. It's, it's like a lot of the movies we've talked about on the channel has a lot of character to it. It's got its own unique personality. Uh, and that's what makes it so great. But beyond that, again, it's one of the it has one of the greatest performances ever on film. It it's one of the most emotionally moving movies that you might ever see. And that even if it is a series of wonderful photographs, um, you really need to highlight the wonderful in that because it is potentially like watching an exhibition of some of the most interesting photography you've ever seen. But the movie does tell a story, and I think that it is a very important one to tell about resisting authority and how difficult and painful uh, that could be. So those are my thoughts on The Passion of Joan of Arc. Uh, I do appreciate you watching it. It was nice to have um, the um, viewers uh, watching this live tonight. It was great to get comments uh, along the way. Uh, please feel free to come back, watch more of the live shows. Uh, I hope that you tune in next week to see the uh, one-year uh, special, the one-year extravaganza that I am uh, thinking about putting together. And um, again, if you like the video, please feel free to hit the like button. If you haven't subscribed yet, please feel free to subscribe. Uh, this has been a lot of fun, and I'll see you in the next one. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.